The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Open your Bibles. Matthew, excuse me, to Romans, that's our Bible reading, Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 5. As you're turning there, one of the illustrations that we began using at the very book, uh, opening of the book of Romans in our study, was that of a watch, an automatic watch, a a self-winding watch, which has all of the internal mechanisms that change inertia and movement into telling of time. And we said that's a working illustration for the book of Romans on two levels. First of all, when you open up the back of an automatic watch, there's an illustration, I think, behind me, yep, uh, you can see that there are gears and springs and screws and braces, all that, that work together to create a time-keeping piece. And I, I'm fascinated by automatic watches. I love looking at them and love looking at um, uh, websites about them. It's just an interesting thing to me. There's a whole history about it coming out of the Protestant Reformation, how the Huguenots came over from France and began to do that to, uh, in Switzerland to, to reflect the glory of God in order. But ultimately, all of those inner workings are all so that you can flip it over and see what time it is. And there are places in the book of Romans where you're just looking at what time it is, and it is glorious. Today, and in the next few weeks, we're going to flip that watch over, and we are going to wade into the deepest part, I think, of the book of Romans. This is, without question, the most controversial part of the book of Romans. It is the place that church history has divided. It is the place where error has found a residence, and it's the place where truth has found a microphone. Beginning at the end of Romans 5, we start answering questions that every person has and few are afraid to really ask. Let's look together at just one verse today, and this will also be an introduction into what we'll look at next week. Today we're going to look at verse 12. Next week we're going to look at verses 12, 13, and 14 together. But this is so uh, wonderfully rich in truth, we can't fly past it too quickly. Romans 5, verse 12. Paul writes, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all sinned. My maternal grandfather's name was Lloyd Morton. My name is Richard Lloyd Holland. I was named after him. It's a precious name. Even the mentioning of my name, to write my my full name, almost always brings back memories of my granddaddy, my grandfather. He was my hero. He took me fishing. I remember casting one time and the whole rod going into the water and learning a lesson on patience from him. I remember going to the bakery to get fresh baked cookies, thumbprint cookies, these uh, wonderful little shortbread cookies where the, the baker would put their thumb in it and then fill it with icing. Going to Tennessee Volunteers football games together, walking in the woods, just walking around the block. I remember him telling me, let's, let's lay down, Ricky, and you, I, I, I'm gonna, I, I want you to scratch my back for a while and I'll scratch your back and we'll take turns. And he always fell asleep. 
I loved my grandfather. He, one of my, my freshest, sweetest memories is to think of granddaddy. I was in the middle of my first grade year, just walked home from school. When I walked into the house, I knew something was terribly wrong. My mom was sitting in the corner with her face in her hands, sobbing uncontrollably. And my dad said, son, you need to sit down. Very simply, very pointedly, he said, granddaddy is gone, and he's now gone to heaven. That was my first memory of death, that it was real, that it was final. Going to the casket at that uh, viewing was a traumatic and yet a very important experience for me. To see that the tent in which my grandfather lived was about to be left and his soul had departed to be with Christ. But as a seven-year-old, I was a pretty good philosopher, as are every seven-year-old, as is every seven-year-old you know. Question that banged on my mind that day and that afternoon, that time and that funeral to this day is just a simple question of what? Why? Why, why is he gone? What? He was the kindest man I ever knew. Why, why is he dead? Why, why did he have to die? I'm sure you've asked that question when loved ones and friends have died. The question is, can you answer it? Do you have an adequate question, answer for the question, why do people die? If you haven't had to answer that question yet, you will. And if you haven't had to answer it a few times, you'll have to answer it many more times. From the very beginning of our study of Romans, I've told you that this is the most theologically dense, the most theologically rich book in the Bible, and that Romans addresses the most profound realities in the most simple, as well as the most intricate and profound ways. At the heart of Romans, as we've said, is the good news of God in Christ. That Jesus has saved sinners from themselves, from hell, and from God himself. As we look at this final section in Romans 5, we need to pause and consider the importance of this verse to the church, to church history, because it really answers the biggest question in the book of Romans. Okay, Paul, the gospel sounds great. Why do I need it? Okay, the gospel sounds wonderful. Why is it the only way? Okay, the gospel sounds like a neat plan about a neat person, but how does that apply to me? At the heart of the good news is the answer to our greatest fear and our worst enemy, and that is death. Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15 read, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, since we're all people, Jesus himself likewise also partook of the same. He became flesh and blood. Why? That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. And then this little phrase. And that he might render powerless, free, those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. All of us are chained to a fear. We're chained to the fear of death. I was uh, recently went to uh, my doctor. I had a physical, and he's a, a godly man. I, I love my doctor. 
and uh, we were talking about medicines and this, that, and protocols and trying to be healthy and do this, not any of that. And, and he just smiled. He says, you know, it's kind of nice to talk to a pastor because this might make you feel better, but you're not going to change one second on the day that you're going to die. And I said, and thank you for that, doctor. It's good to have a godly doctor in the, in the family, isn't it? I checked recently. In fact, I looked on the internet last night. The current death rate is still at 100%. Everyone will die. Now, let me just take a footnote. I know what some of you are thinking. What about those alive at the rapture? They won't die, but that's another sermon for another time. What about Elijah and what about Enoch? Did they not die? No, they didn't. What about poor Lazarus? He had to die twice. That's not any fair. There are lots of questions we could beg about this text, but this one is primarily put in front of you and me to say, do you understand your own impending death and are you ready for it? This is a heavy passage and a heavy sermon. I've told you before that mortician who signs all of his letters, eventually yours. Why do we die? Why do we have to die? Where did death come from? Whose idea was death? And was it the same person who invented the idea of life? Well, here in Romans 5, 12, you have what I would call a short history of death's long reign. We're going to spend this week and next, as I said, looking at verses 12 to 14. So if we don't answer all the questions that this text raises today, just know we're going to come back and noodle a little bit on it next week as well. I want to break down verse 12 with you to look very carefully at two theological realities that cry for the gospel. And these realities are associated firmly and fully with the idea and the concept, the reality of death. Two theological realities that cry, that scream for the gospel. First, we'll find the first section of verse 12. The universal effect of Adam's sin. The universal effect of Adam's sin. Look at the first phrase in verse 12. <coughs> Therefore, and, and by the way, commentators have argued, argued, argued over what therefore is associated with and for. Is this an equal sign that, uh, from the first 11 verses? Is this a transition back to chapter 3, verse 21? The answer is probably all the above based on the fact that we have blessings because of the gospel and because of justification in the first 11 uh, verses of chapter 5 and they just go all the way back to chapter 3. Therefore, we need to understand the context for which the gospel came. You need to understand the reasons why. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world. Take your Bibles and go back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3. Let's rehearse the narrative that we're all familiar with. That's Paul's full, uh, is in Paul's full focus as he talks about the fall of man. Genesis chapter 3. Now just for a moment, we're going to read these first seven verses. And as you do so, pretend that, or try to pretend that, that you haven't heard this before or in a very long time. Try to hear it fresh. Moses has just told us about the creation of the world. He's just told us about the creation of man. He's just told about the origin of the species. Out of nowhere, with no footnote, and no explanation, 
and no writer and no appendix and no side note and no sidebar, we read, now the serpent. He was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, first of all, that's just a little odd, isn't it? You show up in chapter 3 and you have a talking snake. And these people respond, Adam and Eve respond to this talking snake without any fanfare. We don't have any record of them saying, did you hear that snake talk? And the reason we don't is that this is way more than a snake. This is a supernatural being created by God that is not a creation just of this earth. We find that out from Revelation 4, that he's the old serpent of old. Snake says, the serpent says to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, She decides, well, I guess I'll just have a conversation and talk back. From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it. We didn't, God didn't say that. Or you'll die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that the day in which you eat from it, your eyes will be open and that you will be like God, knowing good and evil. There's a lot of truth in what Satan just said about that. They would know the difference between good and evil in a way they didn't before they had sinned. Hard not to break away on a Satanology in, in these passages, but remember that Satan is better at half-truths than whole lies. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. As we've noted before, and she also, and she gave also to her husband, where was Adam? With her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. What's remarkable is that the entire, every problem you've ever had in your whole life, Every pain you've ever experienced in your whole life, every nuance of this world that's less than desirable is all traced to these seven verses. Now, if you're smart, and I know you are, you should be asking, why? I wasn't there. That's the question Paul is going to answer for you and me. The main theme, back to Romans 5 now, the main theme running through the section of Romans that we're studying is that there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. All are condemned, equally culpable before God. All are, we'll say it this way, the only access to God is through the gospel, whether Jew or Gentile, religious or secular. And the chunk of Romans extends from Romans 3.21 through the end of chapter 5 that talks about this idea of justification by grace through faith alone. The first 11 verses of chapter 5, then Paul explodes with delight in the blessings that flow from the justification we have in faith in Christ. Remember, it's all predicated on that verse 
And that word in verse 4, knowing. We know. Uh, we, we can endure trials because what we know about God uh, is doing behind the scenes. We, we can endure trials because we know that the gospel is true in verses 6 through 11. We know things. We're going to talk about expository preaching tonight. One of the main things that we do in expository preaching is we find out the things we need to know so that that helps us understand how to interpret life and respond as we're, we're living along. This is a lesson on how the blessings of the new covenant replaced and exceeded the frustrations of the old covenant. And Paul takes great pains to say to, to the Jews in chapter 2 and 3, why would you hold on to a system that you can never obey, thinking if you obeyed enough you could be right with God, when God has obliterated all of that and replaced the old covenant with a covenant that says, I've done it myself, trust and believe in me and my fulfillment. So the first 11 verses of chapter 5 highlighted peace and hope and love. Now in verses 12 and following, he goes back to that theme of the universal need for Christ and begins to explain why it is that we need Jesus and Jesus alone. And what's the great need that screams for salvation by him? Now the backbone of the section is a comparison. It's a comparison and a contrast, mostly a contrast, but still built on a comparison between two men, Adam and Christ. The first Adam and the last Adam. The section breaks down into two units, verses 12 to 14, which gives us a short history on how the world became subject to death, the short history of death, and how people became enemies with God. How did that occur? The next unit, verses 15 to 21, explains the mystery and the glorious detail of how it is that the world can be reconciled to God through another man, one man, Christ Jesus. This is about two different one-mans. One-men, Z-mans, or Z-men. It's about two different people, both isolated by one. This one man had these consequences. This one man had these consequences. They're compared, but primarily they're contrasted. We find the damning effects of Adam's sin and the glorious effects of Christ's death. Now, these two men are primarily contrasted, as I said, but the comparison and similarity is in the breadth of the consequences of their actions. Both of these men did something which had widespread, unending consequences. Adam's we'll look at today, and in the coming weeks we'll look at what Christ did. In fact, there's a sustained contrast between Adam's effects and what he did and Christ's effects and what he did on the cross. Adam's actions had horrific, evil consequences. Christ's actions had saving and good consequences. Now, let me just give you a little head start where we're going. The argument is that the actions of the one had consequences on the many. In this verse, you find the all and the many. uh, It comes back to us over and over. A closer look, in fact, will show that the term one occurs 12 times and the term all or many occurs nine times. The one, the many, the one, the all. The massive effects of one man's uh, uh, actions on other people and the consequences resting on them. Now, let's shift for just a moment from... The pew to theology class. I was thinking about this all week. There, there are times when, when we, we, we roll up our sleeves and, 
in church and we get extremely practical and extremely implicational and we can find you know, that God wants us to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. That doesn't need a lot of preaching. Then there are times in the exposition of God's word we have to stop and put on our, our thinking caps. We have to stop and enter into theology class. And we have to do that right here. We, we have to look at what Paul is doing and saying and worship and, and fall back and wonder. I, I told you uh, at the very beginning of Romans that sometimes you come up to a river. This is a case with looking at election and man's choice and some of these uh, b- trinity, these big theological uh, issues. You come to a river, it's like coming to a river, and you, it's too, too broad to get across, it's too swift to swim across, too deep to go under, and it goes too far in every direction to get around. And instead of trying to get across it, sometimes you just got to step back and just enjoy the beauty of the river. This is one of those passages. And if you're going to try to trap this passage into answering every question without walking away with some sense of mystery, I can promise you, you are going to have a frustrating afternoon. We're going to look at this verse in this section. And if to do so rightly, we have to pause and consider the importance of what people have done with this verse in church history. The first few verses in historical uh, theology have, have garnered as much controversy and as much uh, argumentation and debate and error as any other verse in the whole Bible. First thing we have to ask about this is the origin of the soul. Now, we're gonna, I'm just going to pick it apart and say this, this has made people ask these kind of questions. Where did the soul come from? You say, why, why, would, why would I need to know where the soul comes from? Because if we're all born in sin, as we'll look at in a moment, how exactly were we infected? How did Adam's sin get passed on to you and to me? Now, I want to introduce you to a couple of terms that, that, are, that are interesting and will help us understand the approaches to this. First is the pre-existence of souls. Some people believe that God had a whole bucket of souls, and as people are born, he just threw souls into people. Well, that's what Mormons believe. That's what Origen believed. Uh, just doesn't bear the weight of scriptural proof. Another uh, view is reincarnation. There's just a few souls, and they just keep getting reincarnated every, every life cycle. Well, those are easy to reject. The two places the church has, has landed, and this will make sense in a minute as to why this is important, are creationism and traducianism. Just hold on. Remember, theology class, okay? Creationism. This is not talking about Genesis 1 and 2. Creationism is simply the idea that God creates a new soul and sends it into a human body sometime between conception and birth. That's the classical phrasing. I, would, I like the, uh, the idea of conception. But the, the classic statement of it is sometime between conception and birth, God creates a new soul and sends it into a human body. Traducianism, unlike that, holds that the soul, as well as the body of a child, are inherited from the baby's mother and father at the time of conception. So here's what's going on. Creationism says, God says... I've created a life in a woman. I'm also going to create a soul. Traditionism says, no, I'm going to take part of the father, part of the woman, uh, of the mother. And spiritually, not just physically, spiritually, that's going to create a soul, a living soul. Now, the reason these things matter is because they influence two big questions. Question number one, if God 
creates the soul and sends it to the baby and the soul is sinful, as we find out in this verse, every soul is sinful, then how can God be the creator of something sinful? You see that? So people have said, no, that, that can't be the case. God didn't create it because he wouldn't create anything sinful. Another question is, if Jesus had a soul like every other man, how come he did not have a sin nature? Now, that's answered a lot of different ways, and we'll get into a, a, a little um, nuanced uh, discussion of that in a moment. But the incarnation <coughs> has been something we've been studying in our theology for breakfast uh, for the last few weeks. The incarnation raises so many questions uh, about this that, remember that river? You just have to pull back from it. We're going to come back to that with Jesus in just a moment. So w- where do these souls come from? Did God create them? And since God creates nothing sinful, where do they come from? Or is it part of the man, part of the woman? Or is it just part of the man? Well, if you look back at the text, we have to read it at face value. Just as through one man, sin entered into the world. Sin came into being from this man named Adam doing these acts and deeds that happened in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Paul informs us that through one man, a single man, the first man, Adam, that sin came into being, into the world. This question has led theologians to consider what the next verse uh, means, when it just says that, that that sin spread to all men. How did it spread? Was it physically contagious? Well, that comes to two more concepts. You've already got creationism and traditionism. Let me give you two more. Seminalism and federalism. Seminalism is the idea, it comes from the word seed. It comes from the idea that uh, sin, the sin nature, comes directly from Adam's physical genetics. Just as you and I are homo sapien, we are sinful going back to Adam, so the argument goes. The other idea is it's federalism, which means that all that's going on here is that Adam represented us. And that we would have done the same thing then and that we would do the same thing now and we're only bent towards sin, seminalism and federalism. All asking, how did we get guilt and sin from somebody else? It's a good question. The context here indicates that Paul, by the way, is not talking about actual sins that people commit, but the sin nature, the sin principle, that which makes us sin, that that makes your two-year-old say, mine and no And the next two verses tell us that God has held every man and every woman accountable for their sin even before the giving of the law based on Adam's sin. You and I get this. We're guilty before we were even born. Look down at verses 18 and 19. We'll be here in a few weeks. So then, as through the one transgression there resulted in condemnation to all men, even so... Through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Talking about the cross. Verse 19. For, here it is. As through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Now, I hope you're still asking, how come? Why am I guilty because of what Adam did? I wasn't there. And I know some of you are thinking, and if I would have been there, I wouldn't have done that. Yes, you would. Yes, you would. This is as clear, by the way, as Paul gets. 
Namely, that through the sin of Adam, many were made. Katastathasan were made. They were Eris, they were made sinners. Even though we did not exist, God still considered all who would descend from Adam and the guilt that we would share with him. In the same way, by the way, before you get too upset about that, back in 5.8, God thought of us before we existed and knew that we would be in need of salvation. Look at verse five, chapter 5, verse 8. God demonstrated his own Lord love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for you before you were even born. So we can't have it both ways where we don't like the fact that we were guilty before we were born, but we like the fact that Christ died for us before we were born. It's all in the preordained mind of God. What we're talking about here is our immaterial sin nature. Now, <laughs> let's talk about this for a second. Uh, what's going on here is clearly representative, um, solidarity. But we have to ask, are, are, were Adam's genes, G-E-N-E-S, not blue genes, were Adam's genetic codes passed on to us, broken and sinful? And the answer is obviously yes. In some way and in some dimension, yes. But what's being talked about here is not so much the physical dimension of the fall, but the spiritual dimension of the fall. Ephesians 2, 1. And you were, what? Dead in your trespasses and sins. Listen to what it, how it describes us. In which you formerly walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. And we too all were formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, engaging in the desires of our flesh and of the mind. And here it is. And were by, what's the word? Nature, we're by nature children of wrath. Doesn't say by, by physical association. It says by nature. So we have to step back from this passage and say, whatever Adam did that was transferred to us had some physical consequences. There are birth defects that are traced to the fall. Uh, there, there are things that we can trace physically through that. But primarily, what he's talking about here is not physical but spiritual. The reason we know that is the rest of the passage is going to talk about how Christ, by contrast and comparison, answered our spiritual sinfulness, not just our physical sinfulness. Sometimes this inherited sin, this sin nature, uh, has been called original sin that can also be termed original guilt. By the way, if you're reading a, a book that talks about original sin, that doesn't mean Adam and Eve's original sin. It means why do you sin originally? Why, why does sin come out of you? But is this fair to hold us accountable for what Adam did? Again, you might say, I wouldn't have done it if I had been there. Yes, you would, and so would have I. And don't think that five minutes after 30 seconds after Adam fell, he didn't want a mulligan. He wanted a do-over. This passage has been used <coughs> rightly and wrongly sometimes to explore the wonders of the incarnation. Remember I told you we would come back to that? Let's talk about that in a second. Specifically, if Jesus were fully human and he was, Right? How did he escape getting sin and a sin nature since he was from Mary's genetics? 
Well, Catholics get around this by simply saying that Mary didn't have a sin nature. Right? You've heard of the Immaculate Conception? The Immaculate Conception, which is... It's kind of funny, and this will date me a little bit. Every time I say Immaculate Conception, I think of Franco Harris and the Immaculate Reception. But if you're too young to that, don't, don't just let it, let it go. The Immaculate Conception, I've actually preached on the Immaculate Reception before. I'm talking about the Immaculate Conception. I'm going to say it right. Is the idea not that Jesus was born of a virgin, but the Immaculate Conception in Catholic dogma is that Mary was born sinless. Very interesting. Why, why even go there? Because they wanted to answer the question why Jesus didn't have a sin nature. But what you've done is just bumped the problem one generation, right? It answers nothing. Others say that sin is only passed through the male from Adam. But the point of this passage is not Adam's humanity. It, rather, it is his humanity, not his masculinity. Also, that would mean that there's no part of a woman like her eggs that were, there was a part of a woman, namely her eggs, that would be unstained by sin. We do believe in total depravity, right? There's not a part of a woman that's unaffected by sin, just like there's no part of a man. Bottom line is this. You have to be willing to leave this as a mystery. I don't know exactly what happened in the the zygote development of Jesus inside Mary and the Bible doesn't tell us did he get his sinlessness because of A, B, or C here's the answer we don't know but he was sinless you can argue either side in the end you just have to step back and say he was sinless I am sinful. Now, again, this is just introduction. We're going to come back to that next week. The universal effect of Adam's sin is at all sin. Now, as odd as it sounds, that's the easier part. Number two. Second theological reality that Christ for the gospel is this. The universal consequences the universal consequence, rather, of sin's contamination. You can call it contamination. You can call it pollution. You can call it a curse. You can call it a nature. The universal consequence. Now we start getting into a footnote. Notice what Paul says in chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world. He won't pick that, that, uh, that, that, uh, the rest of the sentence up for a few verses. But now he goes into some asides. One of these asides is now this, that the consequences of sin are death and they're universal. Namely, death through sin, death spreads to all men because all sin. Now, two points arise immediately. First of all, the wages of sin is, we've already looked at that. The wages of sin is death. Secondly, that death is universal. Death spread to all men. How serious is sin? It's mortally serious. It's deadly serious. It's so serious that Jesus could not just wave a wand and make our sins go away, that to conquer death, he himself died. That's going to be the explanation in the rest of this chapter. Every person who has ever died except Jesus Christ died because of their own 
moral guilt before the holy God. Let's go back to 1969. When I was sitting in my living room, listening to my parents explain to me that my, my grandfather had, had gone to heaven. Question becomes, why? The question, <coughs> the question, the answer to that question was not one I think I was ready at seven to really understand. But I wish we'd have talked about it. Why did my grandfather die? Why, why, did, why does anyone die? And the answer is because of sin. No matter the timing, no matter the circumstances, it is inevitable. Now, again, we'll save that discussion for those who are raptured for another passage. I remember after 9-11, I was preaching a sermon on um, you know, the providence of God and the sovereignty of God, and I had a, a student said, well, Rick, that, that, that doesn't make sense. Well, you know, why did those people have to die and why they have to die like that? Why do they have to die now? Why do those kids on a field trip have to fly into the Pentagon? Please, what, help me understand that. And the only answer you can come to is what happened to those people then was nothing that was not going to happen to them eventually. It's the same for you and me. Every day your heart beats is an expression of God's kind grace. It's not if, it's When? So when people, I don't know, when people die in a mass way, and as horrific as that is, as heartbreaking as that is, why that makes us ask questions that we don't typically ask when they die individually, which is the same question and the same answer. Nothing has happened to anyone in a mass murder situation or a mass killing situation, which was not going to happen to them eventually. That is that they were going to die. People die young. People die in a ripe old age. It's only a matter of time and probability is 100%. Last phrase in this verse, by the way, contains some of the most difficult Greek in the New Testament. I won't drag you through all of it. There's two little words, F, ho. And uh, (coughs) I read uh, probably 100 pages this week on these two words. And the, 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 the divisions that it's caused in history. And the reason is, it's translated in the New American Standard, because all sinned, at the end of verse 12, see that? Because all sinned. The question is, time out. <laughs> all sinned? And all sinned in Adam? How did I sin in Adam? I like the translation, with the result that. With the result that. Because of, because all sin. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 21 says, For since by a man, Adam, came death, by a man also will come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Amen. What does it mean that because all sin? Look at the flow of the text. One man sin enters the world, That's Adam. He brings sin into existence by his disobedience. The consequence of that is death, death through sin. The wages of sin is death. Death is universal. It spreads to all men because all sin. That's 
That has to be taken two ways. Number one, we're all culpable. No one has ever lived a perfect life. All you have to do is live long enough and you will express your sinfulness. So it's true in experience. But how was it that in Adam, we all shared the culpability for that sin? And I like what theologians call unspecified solidarity. Unspecified solidarity, which is a big way of saying we don't really know. We don't really know how that works. So do you sin because you have the genetics of Adam? Yep. Do you sin because you have the nature of Adam? Yep. How did that translate with, with a seed and an egg? And I don't know. And this text doesn't answer the question except, as we'll see in the next few verses, it's primarily anchored in representation. We shouldn't be upset, so upset to try to understand how could I have sinned in Adam and at the same time be okay with the fact that I can be made righteous in Christ. They're both by imputation. They're both by, by something outside of us. And that's Paul's whole point in this passage. Don't bang your head against a wall trying to figure out things that God has not revealed to us. I had a funny moment um, yesterday. I, I'm typically further along in my sermon than I was yesterday, and, and it's because of the nature of this passage. There's so many questions. And I was pounding on it, thinking about it, downstairs uh, you know, looking at it more. And I found this incredible pride in my life. I'm going to confess this to you. It's terrible. I really thought, you know what? This has been a mystery too long. And I think given, I don't know, a couple hours here, I can figure this one out. I was pinned by this passage. We sinned in Adam's loins. And I don't understand exactly how that works. But we are saved by the death of a man named Jesus on a cross. And I don't know how that works exactly. How can he say you are righteous because of what my son did? It's representation, it's solidarity, it's imputation in a way that is inexplicable. Let's go back to the very beginning. We still have to answer the question, why do people die? What was the answer in 1969 when I was sitting in my living room with, with my mother crying and my dad trying to tell me that, that granddad was in heaven? Why do people die? You know what the answer should have been? The same reason you're going to die, Rick. Because of sin. And it's sin that you could not have avoided. It's sin that was a part of your nature. Few takeaways. First of all, you don't have to understand all the nuances of theology to believe it. Remember August, uh, Augustine, he says, I believe, therefore I understand. I don't understand so that I might believe. Sometimes you just have to back up and look at the river and say, wow, what a God. That will make sense in heaven. C.S. Lewis's famous two words. What would it be the first two words out of every Christian's mouth when they get to heaven? Of course, it'll make sense then. Secondly, death is tapping you on the shoulder today. This passage ought to let you heal here and feel death tapping you on the shoulder, reminding you that death is coming, it's on its way, and don't ignore it. 
This passage serves as an alarm clock, a wake-up call. You are dying. We're dying. It's as if the, the doctor could have come out when you were born and looked at your parents and said, there's nothing I can do. 60, 70, 80 years, that's it. I, your, your child is dying. They're going to die. I think in a Western society that's developed, we have doctors and people to get medicines and things. We, we don't remember enough that death is tapping us on the shoulder. Not if, but when. We don't think enough about death. Thinking rightly about death is the only thing that will make you think rightly about life. Because what makes you think rightly about death is Christ. And he's the one for whom we live in this life. Don't ignore death tapping you on the shoulder in this passage. Another takeaway. If sin is not the problem, then the gospel is not the solution. Verse 19 again. We didn't read the, the last part of it. For just through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Wait till we get to Christ. If you think this, how in the world could I be culpable for Adam's sin is a, is a big deal to get around, to, to wrestle with? How can I be made righteous because of what Jesus did is an even bigger deal to get, get your mind around? Are you ready? Are you ready for your just and right consequence of being a sinner? Are, are you ready to die? Wow, Rick, that's, that's kind of a... I came to church to hear that. There is no better news than that because if you are ready to die, you know how to live. And then death, you're able to look at it and say, where is your sting? This last week, um, I was... Kim and I were in, in California, as you know, and we were uh, talking to a, a family who had lost their mother just uh, a week before that. Uh, she had had an aneurysm and um, stayed alive for a couple months and then had slipped into, into eternity. And I was talking to her husband, Rick, who I have a really good relationship with. And, and I asked him a question that might sound a little awkward. And he looked at me and smiled because he knew what I was asking him. I said, Rick, how's, how's Jackie? He thought about it. He says, she's never been better. We don't grieve as believers as those without, what's the word? Hope. Is it, is it pleasant to lose loved ones? No. Is it pleasant to die? I, I would imagine not. But we don't grieve as the world does because of this so you're all guilty so am I we all need Christ and the way we get that is to believe what he did for us every time I say that in the study of Romans I just keep thinking it just almost sounds like a used car salesman because it's so simple Look, do you want to go to heaven? Just believe what Christ did. But if you don't scratch your head and say, there's got to be more to it than that, you don't really understand. And you know what? That is all there is to it. 
So as Edward says, today there is a door standing open in heaven. The doors of mercy have been flung open wide. Run to the Savior. Let's pray. (coughs) Father, we are just beginning to scratch the surface of this passage. So many stones left unturned. We'll hopefully be able to look at next week. We understand that there are inexplicable mysteries in this section of Romans. Give us grace to believe without forcing the passage to mold to our thoughts. No, Father, if there, I would be surprised if someone here has not embraced your son by faith because of your grace to be freed from the slavery they have to their fear of death, to have hope in eternity. Help them to find the Savior today. Explain the gospel to them through someone they're sitting by at the prayer room somewhere, somehow. Don't let a person in search of you leave without responding to your calling. Pray this because of Christ. Amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.